Romans 3, 21 through 31. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he has passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. But what kind of law? By the law of works? No, by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the only God of, of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith? Do we then overthrow the, the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that it is by faith in Jesus and Jesus alone that we can even be in your presence. We thank you that it's not on us. Because as this passage says, we've all sinned and we all fall short and there's nothing we can do to make ourselves worthy. So Lord, I pray that that can just weigh on us today, both the heaviness of sin and the grace that we find in the justification of Jesus on the cross. Lord, I pray that you would anoint Kevin right now just to bring this message, to let it drill deep into our stone hearts and turn our stone hearts into hearts of flesh, into hearts that can understand divine things into hearts that can move the way you want them to. So Lord, we just invite you in to have your way in our own hearts and to use Kevin in a mighty way. We thank you for all that you've done in our lives and all that you have planned for us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Brent. You guys can be seated. It's good to be back. Missed you guys last week. Uh, I was in Virginia. Uh, officiating the wedding ceremony of my sister. So the Andersons are all officially married off now. My sister's in Greece right now enjoying her honeymoon. Um, interestingly enough, she did not, this is, this is a, a learning moment for you guys. So if you're gonna marry somebody who lives in another country, one, get your visa situation taken care of months in advance because my sister's gonna be back here living for a few months apart from her husband because visas are weird in other countries and whatever else. But the other thing you need to make sure you do is if you ever travel to another country, you need to have a return flight scheduled back. She got to England and she decided, oh, I'm gonna get my return flight when I decide to come back from England. They would not let her in the country. 
because they thought she was just going to camp and squat out there. Finally, she convinced them, like, I'm married. Here's my marriage certificate. Here's where I'm going in Greece and, and Paris. And so just a quick tip to you guys, uh, in case you're ever traveling internationally, uh, make sure you have your return flight set or they will not let you in, and then you'll waste all that time getting there, and you'll be getting a return flight immediately um, back to the United States. Um, so Derek preached last week. Uh, and he finished up the last section of Romans. But before we dive into Romans, I want to spend a second talking about something I've, as I was praying back there before we came up here, before I came up here. Um, I just felt led to um, take you guys to Ephesians chapter 4. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn over there. I want to talk about the C word with you guys real quick. And I'm not talking about covenant, I'm talking about commitment. Okay, so the ladies in the room are really excited. The men are all scared. Um, uh, it's not that kind of commitment that I'm talking about. Okay, so go to Ephesians chapter 4, and the reason why I'm talking about this is Brent mentioned this earlier. Next week we have, a, we have a business meeting, whatever you want to call it. It's a covenant member meeting, okay, of the church. And here's the, here's the deal. This church will be five years old in March. And we, um, we've got some big decisions coming down the pipeline as a church, and um, we need to know who's committed. Okay? There, there are people that invest literally hundreds of hours a year into this church. And I, I want to read something to you because, you know, how many of you guys are in business, business school or at some point in time? Okay, about half, I forget everyone's an engineer at UF. Okay, so I'm going to teach you guys some. This is free, free education. I'm not going to charge you guys any tuition for this. In business, uh, there is this uh, kind of this, this philosophy or this idea known as the 80-20 rule. Uh, and it carries over into all areas of life. And what that means is that 80% of the work is done by 20% of the people. And so, you know, so many of you guys, how many of you guys have ever been involved in a group project or something of some sort, right? How many of you guys have ever seen the 80-20 rule come into effect in that group project? Yeah, there's always some dead weight, right, who's hanging out on that team and not doing anything. Okay, so let me explain something to you. If, if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, this isn't going to make any sense to you. You're walking into some family business, okay? But I'm, I'm getting ready to share something with some of you guys that have been here for months and months or even years. And I, I, we, I need you to understand this. Because, there, because all of us in this room, most of us anyway, grew up in the United States, you have been heavily influenced by Western thought and what, and, and what I like to call Western individualism. And what that means is you think the universe revolves around you. So even in regards to being a follower and disciple of Jesus Christ, you make it about you. Right? And here's how I know this to be true. If I ask someone how they're doing, the answers you always give me are individualistic in nature. I'm doing well. I'm struggling. My quiet times are going well. My, my relationship with the Lord is really strong. It's all you-centered. Very, very little of it is either Christ-centered or community-centric, right? Which is kind of a big problem. Because if we understand the scriptures... Yes, being a disciple and follower of Jesus Christ is a personal relationship that you have with the Father. You are adopted as a son of the Most High God. But it is not designed to be lived on an island in isolation. Right? Look at Ephesians chapter 4 with me. This is a great passage that Paul shares with the church in Ephesus on how you are to grow as a Christian. Starting in verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, 
and teachers to equip the saints. That is you, if you are a follower of Christ, you are a saint. It's not some special designation that a miracle has to happen that the Catholic Church says about you. I don't know where they get that in the scripture. Here's the hint, they don't. Right, they make it up. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are a saint. Right, that is what is declared of you. To equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ. You can change that to church because the church is the body of Christ. Now look at this next sentence. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by wind of every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Is there anything there in Ephesians chapter 4 that would lead you to believe that your maturity is centered around solely you and you alone? No. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you must be in Christian community to grow to the full stature and measure of Christ. And that means not just showing up. That means not just kind of being half involved. That means being invested. Because the reality is, is the church grows with you, not with just a pastor or not with just one leader. Right? Pastors, leaders, teachers, evangelists, all the things that Paul has listed there are given as gifts to the church not to do the work of the ministry, but to train people to do that work so that the church might continue to grow. And here's the beautiful thing. As you serve and grow within Christian community, you grow into the full stature of Christ. Because guess what? Being a disciple of Jesus means you take up your cross and you serve and you follow him. Instead of be served. Now, what I'm saying right now is completely radical, right? Because it spits in the face of everything you're told right now as an American, right? Like, it, as a matter of fact, contradicts even the Declaration of Independence, right? It's a direct contradiction to the Declaration of Independence, right? And I'm, not, and I'm sitting up here trying to do some civics lesson and say that the Declaration of Independence is wrong or that we shouldn't have it. But what I am saying that as a follower of, follower of Christ— you need to be centered around this. You need to be focused on where am I investing in the body of Christ? Where am I being invested in by other men and women in the body of Christ? Where am I serving? Where am I working to make much of Christ? Now, obviously, I'm a little biased, but I think that should be here at Aletheia. Okay? And so next week, here's, it, on your way out, on those two tables on the sides, on the way out the door, we've got our membership covenant there. Some of you guys are going to be like, why, why a covenant? What's going on? This is weird. You know, is this a cult? What's going on? It's, it's not a cult. Okay? All right, let me get that out of the way to start with. Everything on this sheet has biblical references for you to go to. Okay? What this sheet is is a presentation from the leaders of this church to you guys saying, we want you to be aware of two things. One, here is what we believe as a church. Statement of faith. It's on the left side of the page. 
okay? We, we believe that we are Christians saved by grace through faith. And we've got all these things over there. I believe in the, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the Trinity. I, I, I have been baptized by immersion with water, right? There's references to that. Yeah, I believe in the Bible. I believe in God's Word, right? That is our statement of faith. Then on the right side, right, we've got a covenant. All right, now here's, here's the weird thing about the covenant. Some people think, oh, like, I have to be those things to be a part of this club. No. Okay, what this is saying is, this is what the Bible says Jesus' church is supposed to look like. This is what God wants his bride to look like. And by covenanting with us in a community, we're saying we're going to hold one another to these standards, and we're going to encourage one another so that we might do what Ephesians chapter 4 says, which is grow in the full stature and measure of Christ. And so we're going to follow what God's word has to say so that we might make much of him. And so I'm asking you guys to take 30 minutes out of your Sunday next week after church to come to that meeting, right? If you're a college student, here's the thing, because I, I, I know immediately this is what the college students do. Well, you know, I'm just a college student. Don't care. You're an adult. Don't care. As a matter of fact, if you are over the age of 13, you were biblically considered to be an adult at the age of 13. Right? So here in the West, here in the U.S., we invented this weird thing called um, adolescence. It doesn't exist. Right? right? The problem is, is there's some people that have like extended adolescence into their like mid-40s. <laughs> right? Okay. We are trying to put that to death so that we might grow in godliness and make much of Jesus Christ. And so what we need, though, right, is commitments right? We, we need people covenanting with one another, saying, I'm, I'm all in. If you're a part of another ministry on campus, that's fine. We're, we're all about you. Part of the covenant will say and tell you, we want you to be involved in whatever ministry you're primarily involved in, but for your local church, we want you to be established and serving here. If you're a student, here's the thing. Like I told you guys, the students always kind of give me some flack, right? Well, I, you know, I'm only here nine months of the year. Where are you the other three? What makes more sense? Being invested in the place where you're at nine months out of the year or the place you're invested three months in the year? Simple math. Right? Even I can do that. Okay? So please, next Sunday, come to the Covenant Member Meeting. I will talk more in depth about what membership looks like. We will also talk about business. We will talk about the finances of the church and how we're poor. And how we've never been unable to pay a bill. How we've never been unable to help somebody because God still always provides. And then we'll talk about some big decisions that we need to make as a community going forward. Because decisions we make now are going to affect us as a body for the next five years. Okay? Awesome. All right. My soapbox. Off of it. Romans chapter 3. Go ahead and turn over there. Like I said last week, Derek preached last week and finished up kind of what I would consider a section of the book of Romans. Um, we said that the book of Romans kind of has this logical progression, and what Derek finished up preaching last week was kind of this question that Paul has been answering, which is, how does God relate to us? What does God think of you and I? When he looks out at the human race, his creation, what does he think of them? And as we saw, right, Paul said this, Everyone is guilty of transgressing and sinning against God. Therefore, we all stand condemned and underneath God's wrath. That, that has been the kind of the consistent theme over the last two chapters of the book of Romans. And 
you know, as, as we've seen, right, the book of Romans kind of works like a court case. Um, ha, how many of you guys are familiar with police procedural shows? I've got a few of you guys, right? Uh, Jackie and I have a fin- an affinity for Law & Order SVU. Um, I heard a few giggles there. Those are the people that are addicted just like Jackie and I. I think we've, over the course of our eight plus years of being together, have watched roughly 15 seasons of that show. Um, moment of confession for you guys. I don't know how, I don't know, I don't want to do the math on how many hours we've wasted in front of a television watching that show. And that, here's the sad thing about that show. They're kind of all the same. Right? It's like, oh, somebody did something bad and here's everything afterwards, right? You know, and like, you know, like the process, the process is this, right? Like they, they, they investigate and the detectives go and find out who, who committed the crime and they'll create a, a case against them. And then the prosecuting DA will, br- DA will bring evidence of the defendant's guilt of the crime, then they'll call witnesses in the courtroom uh, to testify to the guilt of the defendant, and the defendant will sometimes testify and try to clear his own or her own name, and, and then the verdict comes down, right? And you know, there's always some like you know gotcha moment at the end, like oh, wasn't that person or whatever? You know, they got to do something to make you know the 45 plus minutes you just invested in the show kind of interesting. But here's the thing: this is kind of what Paul has been doing over the course of the last two chapters in the Book of Romans, right? He's he's attacked the reader, if I can use that word, over and over again, over the guilt of their sin. Right? He's kind of made this claim that, that we all fall short of the glory of God, that all stand condemned before God. And then kind of what he does is, over the course of the chapters, he uses different witnesses to kind of display that guilt to us. Right? So he starts off by saying, it doesn't matter if you grew up Jewish or not, your conscience and creation declare your guilt. Then he moves on to Jews. He says, actually, and the law declares your guilt. And then lastly, as we've seen, we saw with Derek and right before Derek's sermon, right, that ultimately God will judge and declare you guilty as well. You know, so Paul's just kind of been bringing these witnesses out over and over again saying, you're guilty, the verdict is in, you're done. And so this is kind of where we stand at this point, right? If you look at verse 20 in Romans chapter 3, this is where we're at. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So really, in reality, the last two chapters of this letter to the Romans have been pretty depressing, to be perfectly honest. And if this was where Paul stopped his letter, we would all need counseling. Because all, all he's saying is at this point is telling you how terrible you are as a human being, myself included. You're, you bring nothing to the table. You are woefully short of meeting God's standard. You rebel and hate him in the way that you act. And if you look at verse 19, look at what he said right before verse 20. In verse 19 he says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who were under the law so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be what? Held accountable to God. We're we're all standing condemned accountable to God for, for, for what we've done, the way we've lived our lives, our thoughts, our heart, our actions. Paul's like, this is bad news for you. I hope you get this. Hope you get the reality of how dire the situation is for the human race. And so I've been saying over the course of the last couple weeks that the reason why Paul goes in such depth about this, though, is because especially here in the West, if we're sharing the, the good news of Christ with someone, where do we go? 
we always run to the cross. It's always the first place we want to go. We want to tell everybody how great Jesus is. And the point that I've been trying to get across to you guys over the course of the last month or two is that we need a robust understanding of our own sinfulness so that the good news is really as good as it really is. That if you don't understand how bad you are, you don't understand how amazing Jesus is. Right? It's like all the time, right? Someone wants to tell somebody how awesome Jesus is, but they don't have a, an understanding of their need for him. And if you don't need something, you're not going to value it. And so here's the beautiful thing, though. We get to verse 21, and there's two words there that shift the entire narrative of everything we've been reading up to this point. Right? If we would describe the mode, or the, excuse me, the mood of the book of Romans at this point, we would say harsh, tough, depressing, reality check, you know, whatever you want to use. And then we see this, right? Look at verse 21. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Those two words, but now, completely change the narrative of the entire book and letter. Paul's saying, yes, you are guilty, but there is more to the story. Yes, you stand condemned before God underneath his wrath, but there is more to the story. That story is this, that the righteousness of God has been made manifest, revealed, apart from the law. Now, let me give you guys a, a quick kind of like 30 second, um, you know, discussion about a lot of what's going to be going on today. There is going to be a lot of theological jargon thrown out today. A lot of big and kind of weighty theological terms and understandings coming out. So um, a lot of what we're going to be talking about took me about two classes worth of seminary. Okay? And I'm going to try my best to sum it up for you in the next 15 to 20 minutes. So there's going to be a lot of big words thrown out. Now, here's the good news. Because I'm doing this, I'm saving you guys roughly probably about $5,000 of seminary education. Okay? And I've already paid off my student loans, so I don't need you guys to pay me back. So here's the thing. Pay it forward. Right? Love on somebody this week. But here, but here, here we're going to start with some of this stuff, because we use a lot of these terms, but we don't fully understand them. Right? He says there in verse 21 that the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Now we don't really use that word righteous very often, or we, at least we don't use it properly. Right? But, but righteousness... In, in the Greek, right, the, the, the original language that the New Testament was written in means it's the condition of being acceptable. Right? As Tim Keller says, it's a, a validating performance of record which can later open doors for you. So let me give you an example. How many of you guys have ever applied for school or a job? Every hand in the room should be up, hopefully. Right? Okay, if you've ever applied for school or a job somewhere, you filled out an application. Right? Or you sent in a resume. That resume or that application acts right, to, in some way, validate whether you are acceptable to the institution you are applying to. 
Right? It works as declaring you righteous to the people that are deciding whether you're allowed to either work for that institution or go to school at that institution. Right? They'll look at your application and be like, okay, we demand these standards, and yes, this transcript validates these standards. Or yes, okay, I'm looking for somebody with six years of experience in engineering, and this person has eight. Okay, this validates what we're looking for. They're acceptable as a candidate for this job. So, so what Paul is saying here is that the acceptability of God, or, or the acceptability of human beings before God, has finally been revealed or manifested to us. Through what? Through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. That there is now finally a way to be acceptable to God that God the Father has finally revealed it in full to us, apart from the law, but brought to us in Christ. Do you understand the magnitude of this, guys? Like, if you grew up Jewish, you longed for having this assurance of righteousness. And many, for about 1,500 years, were even sometimes led astray from this righteousness. Because they found it in places other than God. Right? If you remember Paul's arguments back in the earlier part of Romans chapter 3, the, the Israelites' problem was not that they didn't know who God was, but that they were trying to find their acceptability in their own performance in regards to the law. They were saying, I, I'm a pretty good person. I can do this. And Paul says, no. God has finally explained to us that righteousness is possible and he's revealed it to us, but he's revealed it to us apart from the law, but instead through faith in Christ Jesus. And so we gotta start answering some questions then because here, here, here Paul goes. He's like, all right, here it is. You know, the aha moment. This is the point we've been kind of working up to, right? All of us are condemned and yet God has made a way for us to be acceptable in his sight anyway. Well, how do we receive that then? Right, look at verses 22 and 23. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So two, two things to notice in those two verses. Okay, the first one is what saves. And the second one is who is saved. Now, the first thing that you need to understand, and, and this is probably going to be the kind of the, the most difficult concept to kind of grasp this morning. All right, but I need everyone in this room to leave with this proper understanding of what is the object of salvation. Okay, what saves me? What is the object? Okay, because many of us get confused, right? What's, what saves you and I, if I can word it another way? What actually saves you? Because if you ask that question to the majority of Christians in our culture, their answer would be probably this, my faith. My faith is what saves me. Here's the problem. One, that's not biblical, and two, it actually contradicts exactly what Paul talks about in these two verses. Right, look at what he says. It cannot be faith. Here's two reasons why. Right, verse 23, what does he say? For all have sinned, and what? fall short of the glory of God. So if your faith is what saves you, 
right, here's what happens. You start thinking that you can bring something to the table, right? You start viewing faith as a work. You start viewing it as something you need or something you need to do. And, and what ends up happening is if, if our faith is the object that we focus in on for our salvation, weird theology and practices start creeping in. Instead of focusing and trusting in God, you start focusing on who instead? Yourself. Because what saves you? You, your faith. And so people start getting weird, man. They, like, you know, like weird stuff starts creeping in, right? You'll create lists of things to do to measure how, you know, how Christian you are. You'll, you'll go on this emotional roller coaster constantly, right, in regards to your faith. Because, oh, you know, I, I, you know, I, I haven't been to church in forever. I'm, I'm not feeling faithful enough, you know. And you, then you start questioning this. If you start measuring your, your, your faith on some level, on some scale, which, by the way, you don't even have the proper understanding of what scale to measure that on. If you start doing that, you are going to inevitably start beating yourself up or become prideful. Every single time. And so if the object of your faith or the object of salvation is on your faith, you've misunderstood everything that Paul's saying up to this point. Because guys, look at what he says in verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith, and then this is the line you need to realize. In Jesus Christ. Does it say there, the righteousness of God through faith in your faith or in yourself? What is the object of the faith? Jesus. It's all about Jesus. You hear us say that here a lot, right? It's not about me. It's not about the church. It's not about the leadership. It's not about you. It's all about Jesus. Because Jesus is who saves you and your faith is in him. Understanding how this works is so important. Let me give you an example, okay? Because sometimes, I know sometimes, you know, I can be up here talking and think that I'm super clear, and then people will be like, I have no idea what you're talking about, right? But if I share an example, you start tracking along. So let me give you an example. My wife is going to find this hilarious. I can have faith in my singing ability. She's dying laughing already. You hear that? I can have faith in my singing ability to provide for me financially and support my family all the way through retirement. And, and trust that if I believe in myself enough, I'll make it happen. Right? I'm, I'm just going gonna, gonna to trust and have the faith to do this. The, prob the problem with that is, is not my lack of faith, but what? The object that my faith is in. Because guess what? I'm a terrible singer. I'm awful. I cannot match pitch. I cannot hold a tune. I can't do any of those things. And yet I'm sitting here telling you, well, I've got, I've got all the faith in the world to do this. Right? Well, yeah, yeah, he doesn't lack faith, so what's the problem? The problem is, is that the object of my faith is in something that actually can't provide for me. Right? Instead... Right? If my faith is instead focused on something else, on working hard and pursuing a career in something that I don't know that I can actually do, 
right? It's probably going to work out much better for me because the object is something that is actually possible, right? What many of us never get past is understanding that it is Christ who saves you, not your faith in Christ that saves you. Jesus died for you, not so that you would believe in yourself, but that you would believe in him. Faith focused on your faith at the end of the day is another way of walking down the path of works-based religion. Faith focused on Jesus is worship-based and centered around the glory of God. So as Paul says here, righteousness, salvation is revealed in Christ through faith, not by faith. The way is made by Jesus, not by your faith. Now, how was this accomplished? Right? Because we've kind of answered two questions, right? The first question is, 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 well, what do I do now if I'm, if I'm standing con- de- condemned before God? And, and Paul's answer to that said, well, there's a way. God, God made a way. And that way is Jesus. But how? How did, how did Jesus do that for us? Because the reality is, is if we've properly understood the last two chapters of Romans, we're pretty messed up. That we're far more messed up than we would dare actually admit to. And so here's, here's, what, here's what Paul says, right? He says, well, you know, here's how God did it. Starting in verse 24. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show... God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So there's a bunch of terms thrown out there, and I told you guys we were going to get theological, right? Okay, so the the first one he kind of throws out there in verse 24, right? He says, and are justified. Okay, it says this theological term called justification. It's a legal term. It means to be declared righteous, not guilty, or acceptable. So if you look in the Greek, the word righteousness and justified have the same kind of root word in the Greek. They're, they're the same word. They're interchangeable. And so what Paul is saying is, all have fallen short of the glory of God, but all who have their faith in Jesus Christ are justified, are declared acceptable to the Father. So where before you were not declared acceptable, but declared an enemy of God, you've now been declared a son of God. Right? There's been this transfer of God's acceptance of you. And this is a big deal, right? Because most of us want to talk about, right, the mercy or the forgiveness of God. And guys, don't get me wrong. I love the mercy and forgiveness of God, but God is a lot better than just mercy and forgiveness. Justification is so much better than just mercy and forgiveness, right? Forgiveness means to be pardoned, right? You know, hey, yeah, you did that, but we forgive you for it. Justification means it was done away with as if it never happened, you guys understand the magnitude of that? 
Right? That's one of the, like, the hardest things I keep trying to teach my kids, especially Gideon, that, that after we walk through and he's, you know, in some ways, right, or some way d- disobeyed us, right, that after we walk through and talk through things with him, that when we say, hey, we've forgiven you, it's moved past, Gideon still wants to talk about it. He's like, hey, Dad, you know, I, I kind of did this thing. And like, Jackie and I are constantly saying, we're not talking about that anymore. It's done. It's in the past. It's over. We've moved on. It's as if it didn't happen. It's a really hard concept for us to kind of get and understand. He understands being pardoned, excuse me, but he doesn't understand the fact that we'll just remove it as if it didn't happen. Something we have to continuously kind of drill into him. And what Paul is saying is, hey, you were enemies of God, and God has completely done away with that standing and instead declares you righteous before him, as acceptable before him. Now, now how? By his grace as a gift. That word gift is this Greek word doron. And what it actually literally means is that you are given something without cause. Everybody tracking that? That you receive something without any reason to receive that thing. Now that word's not used very often in the scriptures. You want to know where one of the other places it's used? It's used in the gospels to describe the crucifixion. That Christ received crucifixion without cause. And so what Paul is saying here is that while we see earlier in the scriptures that Jesus was given death without cause, that God has instead given us righteousness without a cause on our own behalf. That you've done nothing to merit the favor of God and yet you have it. Could there be anything more glorious than that? Now, some of us are sitting here and you're like, well, what's the catch? <laughs> right? There's, all, there's always a catch. When it sounds too good to be true, there's, there's always a catch, right? Nothing is really free, right? I remember on my honeymoon, luckily somebody had warned Jackie and I ahead of time, but we were on our honeymoon, and, you know, those people come up to you and are like, hey, we'll offer you a free week's stay to, next time you come back. And it's like, okay, oh, like, really? Like, what do we do? Oh, you just got to come to this breakfast. By the way, run. When somebody offers you that, they're trying to get you into this high-pressure sales situation with a timeshare. Right? It's not really free. Right? It's just an opportunity to try to get you there to sell you something. And so here's the, here's the reality then. Okay, so, so Paul says this is a gift, so is it really free? Well, the answer is yeah, yes and no. It's free for you. Right? It says that this was given as a gift, and then look at what he says, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That word redemption is probably my favorite word in the whole New Testament. Because if you take it back to it, it's, it's, it's actually rooted in a Hebrew term or concept. Okay, it's, it, it's rooted in this word goel in the Hebrew. And what it literally means in the Hebrew is kinsman redeemer. And so here is what Paul is saying. Okay, in, in Leviticus there was this idea that if you couldn't afford to support your family or whatever, you could sell yourself into slavery. As a, as a way to provide for your family when you no longer could anymore. 
but that someone could come along in your family and buy you out of slavery. And they were known as a kinsman redeemer. That they would buy you out of your bondage to whoever you had sold yourself to. (laughs) Here's what Paul's saying. Jesus purchased us out of our slavery to sin and to death. It's free for us. It wasn't free for him. There was a cost. If you see in verse 25, it says, Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. That's the payment. The blood of Christ. That word propitiation means to appease or satisfy. Okay, if, you, if you've got certain translations, right, certain translations will say different things there. Like I think if you have like an NIV or some other translation, it'll use the word expiation there. Uh, but, but the proper word you want there is actually propitiation in verse 25. And here's why. Because propitiation has both expiation and the full definition of what propitiation is actually rounded up in it. Let me kind of explain that to you, okay? Um, expiation is kind of this idea of um, having something taken away. So, so in this sense, like the wrath of God focused at you is taken away, right? But when you bring in this idea of propitiation, it actually means that th- that the penalty has been satisfied or paid in full. And so this idea of propitiation means that not only is the the wrath of God that was pointed towards you and I moved away from us, but it's actually paid for so that God is not angry any longer. That there is no wrath pointed towards you further because God has paid that penalty. And, And what Paul is saying is here that Jesus was that payment. That he was the payment for your sin, for your rebellion towards the Father. That Christ's blood poured out for you was the payment that satisfied God's wrath. Now, this is extremely important. I know that some of us in here are kind of like, why is this that big of a deal? Why do I need to know propitiation? Why do I need to know expiation? Okay, listen. Two things. Right, John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through me. Understanding propitiation means you understand this, that only Jesus Christ will get you to God. I know that we live in an age right now where that's not an extremely popular thing to say. But if you hear from anyone that claims to be a preacher of the gospel and they tell you that you can get to God through Allah or Buddha or Mother Earth or Vishnu or some other crazy thing that we want to make up, they are a charlatan and a liar. Because what the gospel says right here in Romans chapter 3 is that the wrath of God was satisfied in one person and one person only. Who is that? Jesus It wasn't Allah on the cross. It wasn't Buddha on the cross. It wasn't Vishnu on the cross. Or one of the other 100,000 Hindi gods. It wasn't anyone from Greek or Roman mythology. It wasn't your favorite character from human history. It wasn't Caesar. It was Jesus. 
and that Jesus and Jesus alone satisfied the wrath of God. Now, the word propitiation also finds its roots in the Old Testament. And the word in the Old Testament is what we translate as mercy seat. Okay, so most of us in here probably haven't spent a ton of time where we read that really exciting second half of the book of Exodus, where it's the rules on how to build the tabernacle, <laughs> right? Anyone ever really excited when you get to that point, you're going to read the Bible and you get, you know, you're really excited and you get to, you know, about halfway through Exodus and you're like, oh my gosh, this will never end. How, like, go for wood and 30 cubits and, you know, there's all these different things listed there for about 15 chapters and you're like, oh my gosh. Which I think one of the fascinating things is look at the attention to detail that God gave his people. Look at his standards. And one of the things you notice as you're reading through the, the book of Exodus, when, when they build the tabernacle, there's this place inside called the Holy of Holies where the, the, the Ark of the Covenant kind of sits. And then there's also an altar there. And no one was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies but one time a year, and that was the high priest. Right? And, and what the, the, the time of year that the, the high priest was allowed to go into that place was this day known as Yom Kippur. You've probably heard that before at some point in time growing up, right? It's commonly known as the Day of Atonement. Okay? The reason why no one could go in there at any other time of the year is because the, the presence of God rested in that area, right? The Shekinah glory of God rested in the Holy of Holies. And so for a sinful man or woman to enter into the Holy of Holies would mean immediate death because we cannot stand before the presence of God as sinful. And so one time a year, God would allow the high priest to go into the Holy of Holies. And what he would do as he went in there is he would go in and he would take an unblemished lamb to the altar. And on the altar set this, this object called the mercy seat. And what would happen is this unblemished lamb would be slain and then offered up to God for the sins of Israel. Right? That's why it's called the, the Day of Atonement. And it represented God kind of forgiving or pardoning or satisfying God's wrath for the sins of Israel. Now that happened yearly, and guess what? The next day, what was true of, you, uh, of anyone that lived in Israel? They were sinners again in need of atonement again. Because what the mercy seat was, was a foreshadow to what God was ultimately going to do. That now, Jesus is the mercy seat. That God's wrath was fully satisfied when Christ died in our place on the cross and that God's wrath was appeased. This is what C.S. Lewis calls the great exchange, right? That God took on your sinfulness and then he gave you his righteousness. And that as Christ hung on the cross, you both received the righteousness of God, but Christ also took on the full wrath of God for you. Now I had somebody I was explaining the gospel to when I first arrived in Gainesville about five years ago and she, she asked this really fascinating question to me. She said, 
Kevin, why would God kill his own son? Why would he murder him? Like, very rarely do you get, like, that depth or level of question from somebody when you're kind of sharing your faith with them. But that is actually answered right here in verse 26. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. The cross fully put on display the glory of God. We've been told throughout the Old Testament that, that, that the God of Israel is both loving and just, that he's both merciful and wrathful, that we see all these different things. And when we get to this moment in human history where Jesus goes to the cross, we see both the justice of God being served as his wrath is poured out for your sin and for mine on Christ, but also the mercy of God put on display as he offers his son up for you and for me. That he is both just and exacting the penalty for our sin, but he is also justifier in that he declares you not guilty because he provided the way. And the full glory and righteousness of God is put on display. This is our God. He's far bigger than the picture of most of us have. Right, look at what Paul says as he finishes up. Right, like the, the implications of understanding all of this theological jargon. Look at what he says in verses 27 to 31. He says that what becomes of our boasting, it is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow this law, the, the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. He says, there's three things you need to know about how amazing this is. First and foremost, you're boasting. What are you going to boast in now? In Christ and Christ alone. So I love how Paul, right, talks about how he talks in one of his letters about how he's the Jew of all Jews, right? He talks about his education. He talks about how he was circumcised on the eighth day. He talks about how he's a part of the Sanhedrin, the special council of the Pharisees. And then he says this, I count it all as nothing compared to the surpassing knowledge of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord. He's like, I've got nothing to boast in about myself except Jesus Christ. Nothing. I don't care how many degrees you have. I don't care how good of a dad you are. I don't, how, I don't care how good you are at business. I don't care if you're the best doctor or nurse the world has ever seen, the greatest football player on earth, or basketball, or cam jam, or whatever it is you guys are into right now, cornhole. There is nothing to boast in except in Christ. That is what has left us. 
You ever hear somebody like, you, you'll talk about someone and you'll be like, hey, do you know someone? Like, oh yeah, I love that guy or I love that girl, man. She's so, she's so spiritual or she's so holy. No, but her Savior is amazing. No, he serves a wonderful God. May your boast be in Christ who, as he says later on, is the God not just of Israel, but who? Everyone. That God has always been the God of the whole world, but now it's fully put on display and there's no arguing it any longer. That righteousness comes not through circumcision, but comes through Christ by faith. And then lastly, right, he, he anticipates this, this pushback one last time for Israel, right? Because, I mean, Israel is the one who sent Christ to the cross and they are the ones that have rejected Christ as the Messiah and so they're going to push back and be like well what about the law then you're throwing away the law and what does he say no actually we're fulfilling it all right remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 verse 17 can we throw that up there do you not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets I've not come to abolish them but what to fulfill them Guys, the law is not done away with, it's fulfilled. It's done. If you are in Christ, here is what's true, right? In terms of justification, you fulfilled the law because of what Christ did for you, right? Because of Christ in you, you have perfectly followed the law because Christ did. So that when God looks at you, he doesn't see your transgressions, he sees the finished work of Christ. Credited to you, based on no merit of your own. So here's how I want us to finish today. We're going to do something we don't normally do, um, but I think the text this morning kind of allows for us to kind of have this time of response. Guys, there has never been, nor will there ever be, anyone in all of human history that can even remotely compare to Jesus of Nazareth. Not even close. Right? If you fully understand everything that we were just talking about here this morning, there is nothing that any human being could boast about that could even remotely match what Christ did on the cross. And I happen to think very highly of Tom Brady. <laughs> that there is nothing that can compare to him. He willingly surrendered himself, it says in Philippians chapter 2, emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant, putting on human flesh, and then submitted himself further to the point of death, death on a cross for you and I. That when he went to the cross, he paid your debt of your sin in full so that God would be appeased and would be both just and justifier. Because he gives us his perfect standing before the Father. Guys, I say this often, and I pray you understand it this morning. There is one reason for us to be here this morning, and that is to worship Jesus. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to do the same thing we do every week. If I could get the people that I asked um, to, to help us out earlier, to go ahead and stand up uh, in the back. Here's what we're going to do. We don't do like the altar call thing here or whatever else, but here's what we're going to do this morning.
All right. We take communion every Sunday at Aletheia. And the reason we do is because it is an act of worship that when you take communion, you are identifying that it is Christ and Christ alone who saves you. And that when you come up and you take of the, the bread and the juice, that what you're doing is saying, I identify that Christ has purchased me out of my slavery to sin and death, and I worship him now for what he has done for me. And so if you are a Christian here this morning, if you are a professing follower of Jesus, please take a moment to pray while the band kind of plays their music and repent of any sin before the Father and then come up here and joyfully take communion because God has saved you. As we've seen this morning, he has purchased your salvation, your redemption in Christ. It's done. It's paid for. There's nothing more to add to it. The work is finished. And come up here and take communion and let that be an act of worship and thankfulness to God for what he has done for you in Christ. If you're not a follower of Jesus this morning, this is the, this is the moment to place your trust in him. Right, we've got people in the back who would love to pray with you. Even if you're a Christian here this morning and you're like, I just need somebody to pray with. Please go back to one of these men or women. They would love to pray over you and pray with you this morning. I plead to you. Know how much God loves you in Christ. If you understand that, nothing can rob your joy. Paul says that Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. I pray that this morning we'll have done a little more to remind you of that beautiful truth of what God has done for us in Christ. It's all about Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are exactly what you say we are. Sinful, rebellious, stiff-necked men and women who stand condemned and deserving of your wrath. And yet, as Paul says, but now the righteousness of God has been revealed to us through faith in your Son, Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, how I long to know him more and that the men and women of this church would find their rest in your son and your son alone. Holy Spirit, do a work in our hearts that centers us on the excellencies and our joy in the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for your perfect plan. Jesus, thank you for submitting yourself to death on our behalf. And Holy Spirit, thank you that you are the helper and the dispenser of gifts as we continue to walk this out in our sanctification here on this earth. God, we are unworthy, and yet you died for us anyway. Thank you. We love you, and we ask this all in the name of Jesus Christ.